0: me years to put this together. When I went to China, I had no idea that this is what I would find. And then the issue of Coke came up. And then I started looking at the role of Coke. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it.
1: Susan Greenhall is a research professor of Chinese society in Harvard's Department of Anthropology. Not a natural fit for a medical journal, you might think, but recently she's been looking at the influence of soda manufacturers, particularly Coca-Cola, in China. Um, Susan, thank you very much for taking some time to talk to us on the podcast.
0: Thank you for having me. Uh,
1: Now, as I said, you're an anthropologist. Um, Why did you start taking an interest in health policy and um, the influence of industry and, and the soda industry in that?
0: Ah, uh, yes, I am an anthropologist, but I'm interested in non-traditional topics. In this case, I'm interested in elite science and policymaking. But I approach these topics in anthropological ways, which is by digging deeply into the micropolitics of science and policymaking to look and see how personal ties or financial links or even sheer happenstance can come together to produce science and policy and i pioneered this approach in my earlier work on china's one child policy it turned out that the secrets of the one child policy lay buried in the science of population so when i set out to unravel china's obesity epidemic i just dis- i suspected that the science of obesity might contain interesting clues
1: little did i imagine
0: that at the heart of China's science of obesity, I would find the Coca-Cola company.
1: Yeah, and I think when we think about China, even post-Maoist China, um, and the freeing of the markets that go on there, we still think very much about, you know, the Chinese Communist Party uh, and the way that they rule. So, how did? Why would they want to be involved with someone like um, Coca Cola when it's uh, the, the, that's such a sort of icon of capitalism?
0: Well, that's a great question. When Co- Coke was actually the first Western company to get a foothold in China after China opened up for reform in the late nineteen seventies, and the first years were actually very rough for the company, but it managed to successfully adapt. But things have changed a lot since then, so the question today is, what's not to love about Coca-Cola? It's one of the most successful and certainly most adored brands in the world. And sure, it's a symbol of American capitalist ingenuity, but the Chinese are much more interested in learning from the West so that Chinese can catch up and surpass the West than in rejecting Western icons. And Chinese consumers prefer Western brands by a long shot, so why not make them happy? And there's money to be made. It turns out that one of Coke's two biggest bottlers in China is none other than COFCO, the state-owned import-export firm. So who knows what financial links there are?
1: of course it's sort of a slightly uh, murky picture that you're you're drawing here i mean obviously china's um a massive market uh but reading your article it became apparent that um you know, the story of a company that's been huge that's suddenly facing um a downturn in public kind of attitude towards them, public acceptance of them. It might be facing a slightly more difficult regulatory field, um, whether that's, you know, through, uh, through regulation or taxation. Um, it's kind of the story of big tobacco and and what's happened there. We know that in the face of that, those companies turned to the global south and developing countries like China um, to boost their profits. Now, from your article, it became apparent that something a little bit similar is going on with um, soda companies, and and Coke is is doing the same thing as well.
0: It's very similar. Only what's interesting here is that Coca Cola, whose senior vice president was the founding head, the founding president of a global scientific nonprofit that was behind the spread of Koch-influenced science around the world. That director, his name is Alice Mal- Alex Malaspina, he had a global vision from the beginning. Koch used ILSI, the International Life Sciences Institute. It's a global nonprofit based in Washington, D.C., but it has branches around the world. It also has a branch in China, and that branch, I call it, Ilse China was the leading organization in working on the obesity issue in China. So Malaspina from Coca-Cola Atlanta headed Ilse Global in Washington, DC. He personally traveled to China in late 1978 and looked for a local Chinese partner with whom Ilse Global could work. They worked together over several decades and then in the early 1990s, they felt it was time to set up an ilsi branch in China. But all this is to say that is that the vision and the strategies were global from the beginning. So Coke and other food and beverage companies had a mechanism in place so that when the obesity issue became a huge public concern in the US, Western Europe and other major markets, they were able to move to get Koch's vision on how to treat the obesity issue going fast.
1: So the picture you're drawing here is um, China, post virus China, is looking to the West to try and get the best science and and, uh, understand uh, and get ahead uh, of Western countries. In comes Coke um, and says, look, we'll fund a research institute that will get you the best science, which will put you ahead um, of, of these countries. So there's this synergistic thing going on here. Now, um, is it possible in China to you know, pull apart and look at the fingerprints of, of policymakers and the influences that have been on them when it comes to that final policy as well?
0: In China? It's very difficult. One has to be a, an experienced China observer to even know where to look, because in China the whole process is hidden. The 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 founding myth of contemporary China is that the Chinese Communist Party is an all-wise policy maker, and the party doesn't want people to look too closely about how policy is made. That's why I found, as a researcher, that by looking at policymaking through the eyes of the scientists, one can see a lot that's usually hidden. You can see, Duncan, this is a really complicated story and it took a lot mm. of digging and it took a lot of knowledge about how science and policy are interconnected in China based on some 25 years of working on the one child policy to put this story together.
1: Um, well, I mean, that's your job. You are a research professor of um, Chinese society. So, uh, taking your expertise um, that you've built up by looking at the the one-child policy, what did you do? What were you kind of? How was your investigation um, into the the science of obesity uh, carried out? What what would you? What were you actually doing on a sort of day-to-day basis?
0: Well, the research actually involved three phases and I didn't anticipate the second and third one. I started the first. It sort of unfolded and one thing led to the next. So the, at first I went to China back in 2013 and I talked to several dozen obesity experts. I was interested in understanding how China was tackling its obesity epidemic, how it even came to realize that obesity was a problem, and how the Chinese defined obesity. China has its own BMI, body mass index, cutoff points, and then how they're approaching it from a policy standpoint. So I went to China, and I talked to several dozen obesity experts, including all the leading obesity experts in the country. And in those interviews, I learned about the huge role of foreign food and beverage companies in funding the research on this new public health problem. In fact, because the government has defunded um, the health sector and including health research, and because public health was a, a low priority for the Chinese government for decades, starting in the early 1980s, there was no money for public health. So virtually all the research on obesity as an applied public health uh, problem came from these corporations. So in the interviews, I also learned about the central role of a co-funded scientific nonprofit called ILSI, the International Life Sciences Institute. And its branch in China, I call that Ilse China. In that branch was the organization that led work on obesity from the late 1990s, when obesity was recognized as a Chinese problem, to at least the early 2010s. But that turned out to be only the first phase. Because when talking to Ilse China's directors, I learned of a semi-annual news- newsletter that the organization put out documenting all of its activities. So without seeming to be too greedy, I immediately asked if I could see copies. (laughs) So these newsletters turned out to be an absolutely vital source of information. So I scoured all the newsletters from 1999, when obesity was first recognized, to 2015. And then I pulled out all the articles on The Obesity Research and Policy Activities Sponsored by ELC China. And then I studied them to see whether they emphasize nutrition or exercise-based approaches. And that's important because Coke's position, at least up through 2015, is that it doesn't matter what you eat and drink as long as you stay active. As long as you exercise, you can avoid obesity. So I'm studying all these articles, and to my great surprise, I found a striking trend over time toward an increase in exercise approaches in China. So that was the second phase. And then I came back to the U.S., and then I began doing extensive internet research on the global science of obesity. In particular, I was interested in understanding how this ILSI organization, which has branches all over the world especially in major markets for big food and big soda companies. I wanted to understand how Ilse worked in the history of how Ilse began putting together a global science of obesity, focusing on exercise. It was incredibly fascinating, but it was a project involving Tracing all the conferences, tracing the structure of ILSI. What are all the the branches? What are the scientific committees? When obesity was, became a major topic? Who was working on it? What were the themes in the conferences? Which sciences were, which scientists worked together? Which scientists based in the U.S. were invited to China? Because as you were saying earlier, China is very interested in um, upgrading its science to become a global player in the field of public health science. So the people in Ilse China were very keen to invite American and other Western scientists to come to China to educate the Chinese on what was cutting-edge science. And because Ilse China controlled the process, the people that Ilse China invited to be the presenters were by and large folks with ties to ILSI or ties to the Coca-Cola company. And so in, that, in this way, the science that Ilse China imported turned out to be influenced by Coke and its positions.
1: I mean that's that's an incredible amount of work to kind of untangle uh, everything that that's going on there. So, um if I can summarise, Kirk has set up this institution with grants to look at obesity. Um, and it's got a particular focus on exercise as as a key way of, of treating obesity. We've got the Chinese government that's looking to this this coke-funded institution, um, and is getting them the message that exercise is is the way to to tackle obesity. So, do we see that then moving into or kind of does that become established? thought uh, within the Chinese government and and turn into policy do we see interventions that are are very focused on exercise um, within their their plans to tackle obesity
0: so the basic picture is that the Chinese government is concerned about chronic disease but there are many other much more burning issues on its agenda. So the Ministry of Health had very little to do with these issues. The Department of Disease Control and Prevention had little to do with these issues until very recently. In the early years, starting in the late 90s and going to the first decade of the century, the Ministry of Health essentially outsourced policymaking on obesity and other chronic diseases to nonprofits, like this Coke funded ILSI China. And one can find much evidence that ILSI China, because ILSI China had money, money provided by foreign companies, and not just Coke, but there are about 30, 40 companies that fund ILSI, most in the food and beverage industries. ILSI China basically was helping the ministry to create obesity policy, Uh, Ilse China's top leader was a former official in the Ministry of Health, so she personally helped create official policy, including the guidelines for the prevention and treatment of obesity in adults and children, and then her input on the official policy document was removed. So looking at the document now, you wouldn't know that that was essentially written by people affiliated with Ilse. But there's lots of other evidence for Koch's impact on policy as well. Although, of course, you can't measure it precisely. So for example, China's national policies and plans on obesity and other chronic diseases show an emphasis on exercise over dietary strategies. Of course, nutritional approaches are important, but if you look at the indicators and targets in these policies, for example, you see a greater emphasis on physical activity than on nutrition. And there, there's another way in which Coke's influence can be seen in China's policies. So terms favored by Coke when it was promoting the exercise first strategy, for example, energy balance, eating and moving in balance, making exercise part of all health care, these kind of terms can be found in China's official policies and plans. And perhaps most important is what's missing from Chinese policies, which include taxation of sugary beverages, not there yet, or limitations on soda company advertising to children. And these kinds of policies are widely recommended by organizations like the World Health Organization. So there's a lot of impact there.
1: Definitely. I didn't ask I didn't prepare this so uh, if you if you can't answer it uh, don't let me know do let me know and we'll we'll chop it out but I was going to say now in the UK um, and in the in the US as well where where you are there's been a sort of focus on particularly um taxation on sugar sweetened beverages um, as being one way in which we think that uh, the the obesity crisis could be Tackled in our countries, um, and I know in the states that those uh, attempts to get that legislation drawn up have been difficult to do because um, because of p- partly uh, lobbying by industry. Now in China, you would have thought that, given their different governmental system, it would be much easier for them to decide to uh, just you know put that tax on. Uh, they could do it unilaterally. So. Do you see in in all of your looking um, at these documents, any indication that something like that was uh, on the cards, or, or was it just not even considered?
0: No, absolutely, I have not seen that. In fact, in studying these policy documents, what I see is that the overall approach that China has been taking to chronic disease has been to educate people on healthy lifestyles. So the basic responsibility is put on individuals to eat better and exercise more. And the second approach that China is taking is market development. So China's constantly trying to foster the development and growth of new industries focusing on healthcare. So far from regulating industry, the approach has been to spur its growth.
1: Mm. Thank you. That's that's a really good answer to that. Um, I mean, this is this is all fascinating, and you know, we are the BMJ, and everyone listening to this podcast uh, will know that we care about conflicts of interest, and we think that uh, money in in policymaking and and research can distort it. And it's you know, I think that's a message that's that's generally. Fairly widely accepted uh, now, um, at least amongst our readership. In China, um, is there the same appreciation of these financial conflicts of interest and and uh, the effect that they might have on on science and and ultimately on policy?
0: Well, there isn't, and this I was just stunned to learn that in China the notion of conflict of interest scarcely exists. And in the people that I talked to, a few dozen individuals, a tiny handful of them spoke to me very quietly and off the record, acknowledging that corporate funding of health science can bias the results. But that was really a minority of view. Most of the people that I talked to insisted that corporate funding of science wasn't even an issue in China. There's uh, little to no government regulation, and the practice is extremely common. In fact, the government is constantly encouraging scientists to go out and solicit funding from corporate partners. The people that I talked to back in the, oh gosh, it was five years ago now, assured me that that conflict of interest is not a big deal, so, of course, the government is very concerned about unethical practices in science. It's very concerned, for example, about the recent case of that scientist in Shenzhen who claims to have edited the genes of babies. That researcher seems to be under investigation now, and it seems he's under something like a house arrest in southern China. But the ethical issue in the Coke story Conflict of interest in funding has not risen to public attention yet, and you know perhaps this this work might change that.
1: And that's fascinating because, uh, given that it is a communist system with the uh, the inherent distrust of um, capitalism and and industry and owners of the means of production <laughs> within that, it, it seems. Uh, That's a surprising um, kind of omission. But it's not so
0: surprising if you realize that, sure, politically, it's a communist system, but the Chinese Communist Party is deeply embedded with and fundamentally dependent on huge industry. China is formally communist and ideologically very communist, but... It's very dependent on state-owned enterprises. And there's a tight relationship between the party state on the one hand and industry on another hand. And scientists are part of that complex. So um, I think that the idea that the party is wary of capitalism ought to be rethought, especially in the health sector.
1: You've been listening to Susan Greenhalgh, Talk about her article, Making China Safe for Coke, how Coca-Cola shaped obesity science and policy in China. That article has much more detail about the Coke-funded institution that we talked about, Ilse China, and there's an accompanying editorial with more contextual detail. I'll put links in the podcast text for you to follow. That's it for this podcast. We'll be back soon with a fascinating discussion about HIV prevention and PrEP. Who's eligible? Can doctors in England advise their patients to get the drug, given that it's not available on the NHS? And when might PrEP be so effective it does itself out of a job? That's coming up in the next couple of weeks. So if you've enjoyed this chat, do rate or review us. On iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps people to find us and also keeps our place at the top of the medicines chart. Until then, I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. Thanks for listening.